those families who opens like one gift at a time. So that means we take basically almost two days to do Christmas, it seems, as everybody goes one at a time receiving their gifts. Well, if you can think back, though, over the past years, what is the best gift that you ever received on Christmas? Now, in my family, again, that's a rather easy. One of my sons has a birthday today, so we can talk about that at another time, and you can go wish him happy birthday. I'm sure he wouldn't mind or be mildly embarrassed. But nevertheless, as I think back to my own childhood, I recall one Christmas getting up and rushing down to the tree, and there I found Batman action figures. And not just Batman, but it was Batman with the Joker, and then there was the Batmobile, and I had the Batcave too. I was so pumped. It was an eight-year-old boy's dream fulfilled that Christmas morning. And yet, despite how much I prized and loved those toys, not to burst your bubble, children, but the thrill didn't last. Uh, It passed away, actually, rather quickly. Uh, I grew tired of them, eventually, of course. Well, I outgrew them, maybe. Uh, They broke. I lost a few, such that even by the time the next year was rolling around, I had still a very long list for Santa, many more things I wanted for the next year. What was your favorite gift last year? Do you remember? Do you even remember what it was? And if you do remember what it was at that time, what has become of it now? Where is it? Do you still have it? And even if you do, do you appreciate it? For how easy is it to take even the greatest gifts that we have been given and been granted and just take them for granted? We fail to appreciate them. You know, and I think it was a commercial some time ago, but perhaps sometimes the thing to do is take your favorite gifts from years past and rewrap them and put them back under the tree and then unwrap them and go, oh, yes, this was an amazing gift. Well, in a way, that's kind of what we're doing this morning. We are taking the best news in all the world, and we're rewrapping it, the good news of the gospel, really what Christmas is all about. For it's not merely about just the miracle, the strange occurrence that somehow God became man, but what He became man to do, and that was to give His life for sinners like us. For this is not just a marvel we remember, it's our salvation that we come to celebrate. And so in that, here we come And we come to this most familiar text from John 3.16. We are going to rewrap and then unwrap the gift of the gospel to take one other look and so rediscover how great this gift truly is and why this day is really worth celebrating. So if the word is for us from John, it is be surprised again at the greatest gift, the gift of God's love to you in Christ. And this is not a gift merely for those who have never opened it before. This is a gift we all need for the sustenance of our Christian life through this next year. We never move on from taking again and remembering how good God is to us in Christ. It is that assurance that carries you for whatever the Lord has in store for this year. Through the trial, through the blessings, through all of it, but the center of it is Jesus Christ. Well, with that, we are going to see three aspects of the love of God, and the first is this. We are going to see the breadth of his love in the first part of John 3.16. It's the first astonishing truth. As we reflect on the love of God, it's indeed to see its breadth, its length, how far it extends, that it even touches and goes to all humanity. And indeed, this truth, if we can get a grip on it, it should shock us. 
I think by the end, you might be a little embarrassed to think about how vast the love of God is. Because it was the shocking truth that would have rocked Nicodemus's world. John chapter 3 opens with that story with Nicodemus. He is this great teacher in Israel and all of Judaism. He is the revered Nicodemus. He's described as one of the Pharisees. That's the strictest, most conservative and serious sect within Judaism as it comes to the Scriptures. And more than this, he's a ruler. He's one of the leaders of the nation. And it's in that way he is that you could call like the lead conservative scholar that the Jews know. And in verse 10, Jesus even calls him this much. But the point is, as Jesus interacts with Nicodemus, we're encountering someone in Nicodemus who is sincere in his faith. He's dedicated far more than really any of us to many things. And he knows his Bible really, really, really well. And yet at the same time, Jesus points out, you don't hardly understand it at all. And that begins in verse 3, when it reads, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, Nicodemus, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot be part of what God's doing in this world. You cannot be part of his family. You cannot be part of his kingdom unless you are born again. Wait a minute, Nicodemus might be thinking. You mean it's not enough just to be a Jew and to be born into the right family? You mean it's not enough to be have the heritage of having a Jewish mother? You mean it's not enough to be devoted to God's law, have memorized so many things of it? You mean it's not enough to have God's Word decorated all over my clothes and maybe my tie this morning? You mean it's not enough to attend synagogue, to live a good life, to be nice to people? You mean it's not enough, Nicodemus, to just go to church on Christmas Day? Verse 9, again, Nicodemus' shock how can these things be? And Jesus tells him, you must be born again. Well, as Nicodemus' head is swirling and staggering at the thought that he has not arrived, that there's something he's missing, that there's something that is lacking in him, as he's staggering at that thought, Jesus then just blows his mind crashing down so many assumptions that Nicodemus had. Assumptions that, and here's where it parallels to us, assumptions that are shared by almost every religious person in the world. Namely, might I say, good Christian folk. You know, the kind that go to church on Christmas Day. Why is this? What is all this about the spiritual rebirth? What is this that it's ultimately about the heart you're saying and not the ritual or the race that you're from? Why is it? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Why is everything different? Because God loves, and He loves the world. This is a love that's extravagant. It's broad. It's wide. It makes us blush. Again, if we can get a grip on this, it should shock us, make us blush, embarrass us. And there's two aspects of his love in this first phrase that underscore just how surprisingly expansive the love of God is. First, it's seen in the very degree of his love, and then it's seen in the object of his love. First, in the degree, in the measure of his love, it's not a reserved love. It's not a love that holds back. For God so loved the world. This is an intense love of the greatest measure. 
Now, some translations, and they might be in your Bible, have rendered it like this. In this way, God loved the world. And while that may be true theologically or biblically elsewhere, the point of this word so is to talk about His extent or how strong He loves. Like the sports fan that so loves his team, the sports fan that so loves his favorite football team, he does crazy things. He spends hundreds of dollars on tickets to watch people, grown men in plastic, run around on a grass field holding a ball. And they'll paint their face in participation. And they'll stand out in the cold, sub-zero temperatures for hours, for he so loved his team. That kind of love actually might be a little embarrassing. Oh, yeah, he's a Packers fan. And the rest of us maybe just snicker, right? That's the kind of love we're talking about in a sense in that we're not just talking about affinity. We're not talking about a mere inclination towards. We're talking about a devotion. We're talking about an intense esteem for God so loved. But, but the breadth of that love stands out most as you consider then the object of his love, the very world. Now, the word world in Greek has many uses like the English word does. You can talk about a world of people. You can talk about the world as in the globe we live on. You can speak of the evil world often, right? We see that in the New Testament repeatedly, the world that's following after Satan. But here we're talking about the whole world of humanity, just all the people on the earth. Because look down to verse 19 to give you a little context. Jesus says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people... So the light has come into the world, and people, that is the people of the world, love the darkness rather than the light. Mankind is that people, this world that he loves. While others, perhaps a few, run to him and run to the light, many of the world, of course, run from him, lest their evil deeds are exposed. And even still, this is the world, though it's in large rebellion, it's the world that God loves. And that's where it starts to shock us, to be surprised by this love. I mean, our day and age often, though, presumes upon this, doesn't it? Of course God loves us. We're all His children. I mean, He made us. And many of us, as we esteem ourselves, would think, I'm pretty lovable, I think. But of course, we know this biblically. No, not really. We've done everything to make ourselves very unlovely. How is that? Well, we've rebelled against Him. We've become a perverse world, especially those who do not have the Word of God, who don't follow God. And again, back to the religious person that we're in focus here, Nicodemus, where where is his reference point? All of the non-Jews. That is then to hear that God loves the world staggers him. It baffles him. That couldn't be. I heard you wrong. It's almost as if, and we do this, don't we? When you hear someone talking, you can just fill in the words because you know exactly what they're going to say, or you think you do. Nico, here, Nicodemus, he wouldn't have a hard time believing that God loves him, or he would not have a hard time believing that God loves the Jews. I wonder if he actually expected Jesus to say, for God so loved the Jews. But then to hear the world? No way. You mean he loves prostitutes? You mean he loves drug addicts? You mean he loves tax collectors and traitors? 
You mean he loves the struggling? You mean he loves the, the angry and the outcasts? You mean he loves our enemies? Oh, yes. And this God even intensely loves them. He so loves them. Such that you might be a bit embarrassed to find out that he loves them. As the Pharisees were, if you remember that incident where they had Jesus over for a meal and then a prostitute comes in and worships at Jesus' feet. They're all embarrassed for Jesus. Oh, if he was a real prophet, he would deny this. He, he would know who she is, what kind of woman this is. He wouldn't permit her. But Jesus wasn't ashamed. He loved her. Why? Because God so loves the world, even all of the sinners and rebels upon it. Why? Because he loves. He loves even his enemies, and that so intensely. He so loved the world. And if we can come to grips with that truth, it has to reform us and change us in at least two ways. In the first place, for those that are in Christ, so of course my brothers and sisters here at Grace Bible, this means you need to recognize God's love is not narrow. His love is not small. Uh, realize His love is not conditioned upon your merits or performance or what you do. It's not where His love resides. But then as we see how vast His love is, we have to turn and ask the question, but is yours? D does your love look like His? Think about it. How do you treat those who are not like you? How do you treat those who don't like you? Would anyone mistake that for love? Or to add to it, if someone's wronged you, they've done something against you, is how you treat them back seen by any as love? Or does it look more like avoidance or bitterness or coldness? Ask yourself this question. Does your love persevere? Does it keep at it? Or are you more likely just to turn your love on and off when someone measures up or doesn't measure up to your standards? Say you're okay, and then they cross you in some way, and your love just turns off, even within the body. Why do we do that? Because we think, they don't really deserve my kindness right now. Oh, have mercy upon us for such shameful thoughts. And we praise Him, right? Because His love is nothing like that. But here's the second way then. His love must transform us because it has to transform our thinking. To know then, whoever you are in this room, whatever you pass, whatever you've done, God loves sinners. He loves fallen people. He loves a sinful, broken world, even you, even still this moment where you can hear His words. In His love, He offers you Himself. He offers you clemency. He offers you mercy. He's not done loving even still. He is in that picture of the prodigal son, the father. He's looking on the horizon, waiting for those prodigals just to come over the hill and home. So what's the point? Be like that son in the prodigal son's story. Don't wait till you're better. Don't wait till you're cleaned up. His love is now and he calls you now. Because here's the kicker for all of us 
Once you've come and seen how broad his love actually can be, that it can envelop you as much as you might struggle with bitterness and avoidance and all those things. That he could love even you, and to be clear, you are the worst sinner you know. Oh, what do you mean? Well, you know your heart and mind better than anyone else. You know the rebellions of your heart, and yet he still loves you. How can you not come back to that? And how can we not love back our God and others? As Jesus commands us, Luke 6.35, But love your enemies, Jesus says. Because what then? And you will be sons of the Most High. You will be like your God who is kind to the ungrateful and evil, Jesus says. In the gospel, we know this firsthand. Let us love like he is loved. Second, discover the depth of his love. It is not only broad, but it's so deep. And again, this should shock us, embarrass us. How can he love like this? And so we turn just to that next phrase of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave, and he gave his only son. How deep his love goes, such that he would give up his son for the world. The father loved so much that he gave. This is what his love compelled him to do, to give. And again, here we see two aspects of this that demonstrate how deep the Father's love really goes. First, his love is seen in that he just gives, that he's generous. He loves so he gives. And to clarify the context for us, what kind of giving do we mean? What kind of giving does God have in mind? We find it expressly here in verse 14 of John 3. Here's the kind of giving of the Son that the Father has in mind. So look at verse, verse 14 again of John 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now what serpent in the wilderness is Jesus talking about here? What's well, a reference to the book of Numbers? That's in the Old Testament, tracing the story of Israel, Numbers chapter 21. And we're studying Exodus. Lord willing, we'll get back there on January 1. But that is the story of Israel escaping Egypt, which they do. Okay, spoiler alert for that study. And then they journey through the wilderness for some time on their way to the promised land. But on the way, and many times, the people sinned. And in one particular instance, they're complaining against God. And so they are judged by God, disciplined by Him, and they're judged by venomous snakes. And they cry out to God and say, I've sinned. We've sinned, complaining against you. And God provides a solution. He says this, Moses, make a serpent out of bronze, set it on a pole, and everyone who looks at the serpent will be healed. So that's the incident Jesus has in mind. So here's the connection. As the serpent was lifted on the pole to provide healing, Jesus will be lifted up to provide salvation, to provide rescue to any that look to him in faith. But when does Jesus get lifted up, so to speak? Well, if we look at the other occurrences of that word lifted up in John's gospel, the answer becomes rather clear. You can flip over and see it, actually, in just John chapter 12. The evangelist tells us exactly what this means, that Jesus is lifted up. This is John 12, verse 32 and 33. And I, Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Now, you might think that's the resurrection. At least I would. 
at least on first blush. But then John the evangelist here, the writer in verse 33, tells us precisely what this means. When he says, I'm lifted up and I'll draw all people to myself. When's he going to do that? He said this, verse 33, to show what kind of death he was going to die. What is the lifted up on the pole? Oh, but to be lifted up on the cross. This is the giving of the Son. He's being given to die. And in that way, this is what the gift of Christmas is all about. It's not merely about God coming to come alongside us. It's not merely about God coming to this earth, walking the steps where we walk, you know, being very sympathetic to us. It's actually about God coming to live a life you could never live and then die in your place to give you salvation, to give you rescue. But this is the extent of the Father's love, that He would gift His Son, not just for a visit, not to just come see you, He will gift you with the Son's life. I mean, in part, we exchange gifts at Christmas time to remind one another of the gift that Jesus is and the miracle, I mean, the glorious miracle that blows the mind that somehow the infinite God, the Son, comes and takes on flesh and becomes a helpless baby laid in a manger among all the animals. What a humbling and wonderful scene. But it really wasn't about just coming for that. It was coming to die. And that makes his love truly incredible. Captured as well, back to John 3.16, in that expression, his only son. This is whom he gives, his one and only son, or some of your translations quite literally have, his only begotten. And what's the point but that the father loved the son? He didn't give over something of lesser value to him. We see repeatedly in the Gospels, the father says about the son, this is with whom I'm well pleased. No one so delighted the father as the son did. His delight revolved around Jesus There's nothing in all creation or even to his imagination that he loves like the eternal Son of God. And yet, in love for us, he gave up him. How? If it came down to all of you giving up any one of my children, I'm sorry, you'd be in trouble. Honestly. I love my sons and daughter too. I, wouldn't, I, can't, I couldn't really think to give them up for you. And he gave up his perfect son, who ever delighted him in heaven, who never disappointed him. There's no greater love than he can have than to give you his greatest gift, which is his son. His love is not just wide, you see, it's deep. It's deeper than the deepest ocean. Reminded by Bill Cross, the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean. It's so deep, you could drop Mount Everest in it, and you'd still have a mile of water over top of its peak. If we might use that analogy, dare I say, even the mountain of your sins cannot keep God's love from you in Christ. What a gift. It's a love that gives, and it gives what's most precious to it, seen by no greater way than the gift of His Son. So you see that his love is not narrow, but you also see his love is not very shallow, is it? It's a love that doesn't get thin as it spreads so broad, yet somehow it is all the way across, hearty and deep and sincere and generous and sacrificial. 
So then we just have to ask ourselves, how deep is your love to him in return? What does shallow love look like? And what would a deep love look like? A deep love looks like this. What does your love look like? Is it a Sunday morning love? A broad smile on Sunday's love that doesn't cost you much? Which means you don't get involved, really. You stand aloof. You don't press into relationships. Why? Because honestly, relationships are hard. (laughs) You're going to get hurt. Yet the Father gave His Son, didn't He? Did that hurt Him? Is it because you don't love or that your love isn't very deep? You don't inconvenience yourself, at least not others, more than yourself? Could it be then, if that's the case, that you have yet to appreciate or you have forgotten how great this love is for you? 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Because of the very nature and extent of His love, how can we not love? And most of all, in the context of 1 John, His body, the church. And maybe, maybe that stings a little on Christmas morning. (laughs) Maybe you're a little convicted by it. But understand, part of the, the glory of this gospel is His love is deeper than that. And it hasn't moved on from you. It doesn't more or less stop with you, but it goes deeper. And He will forgive you as you confess your sinfulness, even your shallow love, and discover again His love is deeper still. Discover again the breadth of his love. Third, reap the fruits of his love. And that way we might say, unwrap again the gift and enjoy what his love has accomplished. As incredible as God's love in Christ is, not everyone actually will reap its fruits or actually enjoy it. Uh, And again, this might shock us given what we've been reading already just in John 3.16. I mean, what do you mean, Rick? You said that he loved the world. That means his love's for everyone. Well, listen to last week's sermon, I might say, from Exodus or Romans. His love is for the world, yes, and also no. His love is for the world, and that is for Jew and Gentile, Greek, Roman, white, black, yellow, tan, rich, poor, and all the peoples of the world. And yet, only some, only some will know its benefits. Well, who are they? Well, look at the way the verse ends. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. See, His love ultimately settles on those who will believe upon Christ. Whoever believes in Him. Again, those from within this world that He loves, that come out with faith, who trust Him, that's upon whom His love settles and who enjoy the fruits listed here. Those who believe, that set their trust on Christ. Okay, well, what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe on Christ? Well, Jesus had given us an excellent illustration of it, and we return to it, and it's this illustration of the bronze serpent. He mentions that in verse 14. Recall in chapter Numbers, chapter 21, that the people had complained against the Lord and they were justly being disciplined, stricken by these deadly snakes. And the people cry out, confessing their sins. They say that, we have sinned. 
And at this, the Lord mercifully provides. He provides healing, a rescue, safety from this death. But in this certain way, let me remind you, here's what the Lord told Moses in Numbers 21. Here's what he's to do. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, note this, when he sees it, shall live. What must they do to recover from these venomous snake bites? What must they do to be rescued? How will they be made safe? But to look and live. There's nowhere else to go. There's nothing else to do. They look and live trusting in the promise of God to remedy it all. There was nothing medicinal. There was nothing magical inherently about the snake on the pole. There was no antidote distributed. There was no antivenom dish out. Nor was there anything meritorious or to their credit other than they opened their eyes and they saw it. This is faith. Looking to the cross and seeing there that Christ did die for you. That he paid the price for you. That he was delivered for you. And by this, you would be saved. For it is by the promise of God, just as the people looked at the snake, in the same promise, all those that looked to the Son lifted on the cross. There we believe He died in our place, died for our wrongs, dying for our sins, such that God would save us as He promised. And notice, not by any effort, not by any working, not by any prior reform or earning, but just as a, as we celebrate, a sheer gift that God could and will, as He promised, declare righteous, reconciled. Romans 4 says, even the ungodly, but the ungodly that look by faith to the righteous Jesus Christ. That's the gift the believer sees when he looks to Christ and His cross. Note the difference this makes for the one that looks with faith. John 3.16, again, He puts it negatively and positively. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish on the one hand and on the other, but have eternal life. So in the first place, the one who looks to Christ by faith, they don't perish. They don't rot. They don't spoil. They don't ruin. They don't expire. They will not be destroyed. They will not be ruined eternally. They will not be forever separated from God, suffering for their own sins and rebellious thoughts, words, and deeds, as we do say. Because that's the thing. Lord, have mercy. That's what we all deserve, you see. Everyone in all the world, and certainly in this room, we all deserve His wrath, justice, for all those rebellious deeds and thoughts we have had. And yet we see here, too, not everyone will find such mercy, but only those that look to Christ. Many, even dare I say most, will actually perish. Why? Because they're going to face God's judgment alone without the safety of the Son. And why will that be? Because they will be judged for their own sins, but even more than this, they will have rejected the only way of rescue. Such that, look down to the last verse of John chapter 3. At the end of it, John 3, it makes it so starkly clear. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not, interesting, obey the Son shall not see life. Why? But the wrath of God remains on him. You see, the justice of God's never moved along. 
It's like as I one heard, heard one brother talk about. It's like a brewing thunderstorm under your head until you're in the safety of Christ. This is what the wrath of God is. It's a brewing thunderstorm under, over your head, ready just any moment for the flash, the thunderclap to come with God's justice being there's only one refuge. And that is with the look of faith to Christ. Again, it's that look of faith to Christ that makes all the difference. But on the very polar opposite to perishing, it's not merely just neutral safety, but it's eternal life with God. He shall not perish, but have eternal life. You know, life that doesn't die or doesn't end or just continues in existence may not actually really be life. You know, a life that just goes on and on and on and on may not actually be life. We know this in a very physical sense. Maybe some of us have to work through such terrible things. But to make those decisions about family members that, you know, they're on a ventilator, they're on feeding tubes, they're on a heart machine. We can do a lot of different things to keep the body alive. But is that really living? Jesus tells us that this is eternal life. It's not merely keeping your body alive. What is it? It's actually knowing God. He tells us later in the gospel, John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. This is life, and it's knowing this God who loves you. It's knowing this God who came to die for you. It's coming to know his character, his mercy, to know his love, and to be humbled by his justice. And this is life that doesn't merely go on and on, but because you get to know him better, it gets deeper and deeper the farther you go in. I can't improve upon this word of Spurgeon, so I will share it. To think about eternal life, he calls it this. What is this life but a life that shall last through three scores, years, and ten? A life that shall last you. You should outlive a century. This is eternal life. A life that will still flourish when you lie at grave's mouth. A life that will abide when you have quitted the body and left it rotting in the tomb. A life that will continue when your body is raised again and you shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. A life that will let shine those stars and yon sun and moon. A life that shall be co-equal with the life of the eternal Father. As long as there is a God, the believer should not only exist but live. As long as there is heaven, you shall enjoy it. As long as there is Christ, you shall live in his love. And as long as there is an eternity, you shall continue to fill it with delight. And I will then just add, Dr. Spurgeon, because you will grow in knowing your God, Jesus Christ. The Father has gifted the world with his Son. But will you open the gift? Will you reap the fruits of it? Some of you in this room certainly have never done this. You're holding on to that thought, God wouldn't be right to judge me. I'm not really worse than other people. Hell is really too awful for someone like me. Rather, friend, God's holiness is far too majestic for you to expect any mercy apart from Christ. He has offered you the gift of His Son, and but by His promise that you would not perish if you would just look to Him by faith and so be transformed by the love of Christ.
Now, most of us, I trust, we know this story. Uh, We believe it. But, of course, we come together in part to remember it, to unwrap again this marvelous gift. Because it's easy to take it for granted or to forget it, isn't it? And the irony of doing so in such a season as this, but it's so busy. (laughs) Isn't it easy to do? There's all the decorating, all the shopping, all the deadlines, the traditions, the outings, the staying up late, putting in things in the stockings. Maybe there's the pressure at work at this time to meet deadlines or you had assignments at school as you were getting ready. And then we add all the parties and gatherings and trips and more and we're running everywhere. And has it not at times felt to you more like a burden? Really than a celebration? Does that not at times drain on your life instead of give it? Well, to the point that is happening, I'm afraid at that point we've certainly forgotten. We've lost sight of what's really most important and where our hope really lies in this glorious gift we've been given in the Son. For what other thing are you wanting? What besides Him could you long for? Can it prove any better than eternal life in Christ? To ever grow in your knowledge of Him, the assurance of one day seeing Him face to face, the one who loved you and gave Himself for you, the one who made you, who thought of you, who came for you, who sacrificed for you, who died for you, who bore your sin, who rose from the dead. No other gift can compete with that. And so this Christmas Day, on truly, yes, the Lord's Day, unwrap again that gift, discover again the breath of His love that would even include you, Try to sound, find the bottom of the depths of His love this day, that He would give even His Son for you. And so rejoice in God's peace as you reap the fruit of His love, and so be changed, be different, for that's what His love is for. It's not a love that's narrow, it's not stingy, it's not a love in word only. It's a love to the undeserving, the unworthy, just like you, just like me the gift of His love, the gift of His Son, eternal life in Christ. There is no greater gift. Let's thank Him for it. Let's pray together.